but the funniest thing that happened was we were walking uh, through Brattleboro. Have you been to Brattleboro? If not, I've only heard about it from Johnny Hobo and the Freight Trains. Oh, man, you would love it. I think uh, a lot of people out there would love it. I know my boy, um, Soy Boy of the Deep, would love it there. He probably does already. Shout out to Jeremy. Um, Yeah, no, we went to Brattleboro for a little bit, and it's, it's a really cool, crunchy town. You get the sort of like the 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 dream of the 60s is still alive there there's still a lot of people like washing up on the shores of the connecticut river down there in southern vermont but uh we took we took uh some serious acid you took a 60s dose of acid yeah it was good too it was really nice and uh, I really felt my age because, you know, we took a half and then, like, of course, like, idiots 25 minutes later, like, not working, time to take the rest of it. Oh. And then within 45 minutes of that, it was all over. And I'm walking around, like, the town square, the village green of, like, this lovely New England, like, old industrial town, beautiful place. Um, and I knew it hit me when I stepped in front of the Civil War Memorial there. And there was, like you know, the big old statue from the 1880s or whatever. But then there was like a new plaque that they put in. And I'm trying to read this thing. It was like all of this verbiage, all these words. And the words are kind of scrambled in my mind at this point in time. And I realized that it had been put up in the last year or two. And it was like a revision to the Civil War statue. And then not only did I realize I wasn't at all sober at that point in time, but I also felt really, really old. I felt like, uh, I felt not just my age in terms of like, personally but also this whole new like world that's come up over the last few years this whole revision you know i felt the revision of uh of history and society that we've all been going through the last few years on acid (laughs) what do you mean by revision well you know there was like a rejoinder to this old civil war statue like this that was celebrating the people that fought and died in the civil war on the part of the the union army and um the plaque was about how the statue was uh, classist, how it was racist, uh, anti-indigenous, and uh, basically like pointed out all the, the parts of the statue that were wrong mm. in our current eyes. And I thought that was really interesting because I've heard a lot about the statues being taken down. And we've had guests on who have been like revisionists about the sort of like Whiggish American history sort of thing, even like the Howard Zinn type American history. Um, but I saw it very viscerably and very, very high. And I said to myself, the times, they are changing. Are you pro-statue or are you pro-plaque? Um, uh, jury's out. What about you? Well, I mean, this might be an interesting way to, to talk about the Supreme Court decisions because yeah. um, like the, I, I sort of, the one almost bright spot of these two decisions that came out last week um, the one against the Teamsters and the one that, I guess, actually protected the Voting Rights Act to some whatever minimum degree in Alabama, um, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, mm. Biden's Supreme Court justice, um, was, seems to be like the last liberal left. <laughs> yeah, eight <laughs> like to even, one decision. Yeah, eight to uh, one, yeah. and only Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And her decisions, are, or, like, uh, or her, maybe her questions are kind of like, am I the only one here who mm-hmm. remembers what the 14th Amendment's about? <laughs> it's not actually race neutral. Right. It's yeah. actually about doing, like, starting the difficult work of establishing equality writing, for people uh, who have been slaves. Writing a, in, a historical injustice and making, like, uh, we hold these <clears throat> truths to be self-evident, to, to be further realized in, like, the... You know, the course of history through the, the writing of the amendment. Yeah, I mean. And so the revisionism, of course, is that, you know, Lincoln freed the slaves mm. or that the Union Army freed the slaves. Or may, I don't know, or maybe is Du Bois the revisionist for saying it was the slaves freed themselves? And du Bois the was, a, was the revisionist first. Okay. And then people were revisionists after him. Adolf Reed is a revisionist on the revision. Okay. So, like, uh, I remember reading Adolf Reed some time ago. People could probably find the article if they wanted to. I could probably if I felt like it. But, no, he was talking about how, like, um, within the sort of uh, post-New Left politics that, you know, he's... Uh, seen grow up around him since he's been a professor. The dude's like 80 years old at this point, right? So, like, there's this uh, revisionist sense that, like, 
you know, uh, Lincoln was just being borne upon the tides of like this great insurrection, this great general strike. Uh, and that, you know, uh, not just emancipation, but uh, reconstruction was like a, a fully bottom up enterprise, you know, that it was like a, uh, um, a grassroots initiative. And then Adolf Reed pushed back on that revision and actually points to the relatively historically accurate movie Lincoln, which I watched again recently, which shows the way that there was like, it wasn't just bottom up, but it wasn't just top down either. There was like a legislative component to this entire thing that enshrines it in law. And then that becomes the terrain on which people fight and struggle uh, from thenceforth. So when you ask about like the revision of the plaque on the village green of, uh, of Vermont, I say the jury's still out because... You know, history is constantly being revised. And, and I myself am trying to get my head around what it means for us, what it means for not just America, but I guess more broadly the left, whatever that constitutes nowadays, that we seem to have doubled down on the kind of um, institutional critique and political critique of um, any sort of progressive aspects of the Civil War or um, any progressive aspects to say like the Demo the Republican Party of like the uh, of the 1860s as being you know as Marx and Engels were cel celebratory of as being this sort of like uh, free labor free land free free men sort of uh, instantiation of bourgeois freedom that does this sort of second revolution and destroys the you know the slave economy and the slave power in the South. It's but they were dragged into it. Sure they were, yeah. They made history, but not under conditions of their choosing. Lincoln was pretty clear that he wanted to save the Union with slavery or without, and mm -hmm. that was not the important part to him. And in the course of the war, it became totally clear that the best asset the Union had was the intel and the voluntary labor of freed slaves who, who left their plantations and their work and fled and, towards the Union lines. And often fought and died. You know, alongside uh, the rest. And it was yeah. so significant that by the end of the war, even the Confederacy was planning to start having black soldiers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's all that's all certainly true. I'm not sure that's like the most um, the most powerful thing. I mean, there's 600,000 Americans died between the two sides in that war. It was like a horrific bloodletting. It was certainly like a huge aspect of it. And, and Lincoln comes, it seems, as we understand it from his writings and historical documents, he comes to like see the importance of emancipation not just in terms of um you know military exigency right but uh of course too like he appears to have made a shift in his own thinking through the course of the war that it was like a moral and political uh, and ethical right but don't you think that that happens because they were made to confront the fact that black people in the united states we're willing to fight and die for the same cause as white people. Absolutely. That, which yeah. never occurred to anyone before. I'm not sure it never occurred to anybody. Not literally anyone, but like yeah, no I mean, one in the Brown, Union Army. John Brown's concept wasn't that he was going to go to Harper's Ferry and like grab some guns and do a Rambo out there in the countryside and just start taking him out. His well, his idea concept was also to, wasn't to... It was to arm black... It was yeah, for a guerrilla insurgency, mm -hmm. not a... He, I think he understood that the the, the uh, you know government of the United States was nowhere near ready to understand this concept that black people were people. Mm. Um, anyway, we're getting kind of we're getting a little far here. afield, man. That's what uh, that's what those '60s drugs will do to you, man. You got to stay off of those things. You gotta you gotta. But um, it is stay in, clean and sober. I mean, it is incredible that you know the the failure of Reconstruction is, and uh, also I think what we talked about a couple episodes ago the failure of the labor movement that exploded after the civil war to integrate um, the failure and the failure of reconstruction to even approach real equality is still the source of the major divisions of American society today. Well, yeah. Well, the, I mean, this is like a thoroughly bourgeois society, right? And bourgeois society. So that is certainly the terrain on which these things play out, um, you know, much to our detriment, I think, but, the, uh, there's a backlash, right? The, what are the 18... I mean, already in the 1860s, but certainly into the 1870s, you have a backlash. And if there's any sort of pendulum that explains or at least like outlines American history since the very beginning, it's about like halting forward progress and then backlash. And that's kind of, I think, going to be a theme of this episode too because mm, we're going to yeah, be talking definitely. about... Uh, you, you brought up the uh, Supreme Court decision on the Teamsters... <laughs> um, 
uh, strike where they, what did they, they left the fucking, they had a, they had loads of uh, concrete and they just walked out on strike and left the trucks running. Yeah, but, but they I, end up getting sued. Right, and I, I, I'm glad that you read the decision because uh, I read it for the episode and there, there's a, a detail in there that I had never heard before, mm. which was that, because I, I thought this was about like, oh, the Teamsters sabotage these trucks like the the cement hearted in the trucks and the trucks are no longer usable and i was like okay that's based or whatever yeah, but, but also yeah like i mean that's yeah. got to be a crime but that's not what happened they poured no. out the cement it was about there's, there's no real the only damage was the loss of cement cement yeah i mean those trucks are expensive trust me i hear it from the supers all the time if i gotta send this truck back it's gonna be two thousand dollars or five thousand dollars whatever it is but no it, it does seem on the face of it this what was the supreme court case just so we'd let people know at home it's called um uh concrete uh company versus uh concrete teamsters glacier uh, versus teamsters glacier and unlike it Unlike in the rest of the news, uh, Glacier won. Glacier won one. The glaciers aren't winning one in the rest of the world, that's yeah. for sure. But yeah, no, it was about like what, um, what the scope of a union or like rank-and-file members of a union, uh, what the scope of their um, diligence needs to be in not sabotaging and destroying equipment. You know, there's like a lot of the decision is parsing whether or not leaving the trucks on, bringing them back to the yard and saying, we're going on strike, you know, while the barrel's spinning, which means that you've got like a few hours is enough or whether that's like a malicious thing to make the fucking middle manager office guys. <laughs> there's a great, you read it too. There's like a great passage in there where it describes what happens after the teamsters walk off. They're like, fuck this. We're out. There's like what nine trucks or something like that filled with concrete spinning. And so the, 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 the clock is ticking, but there's no qualified teamsters there to do anything about it. They got to get these out of the truck. So apparently they get all the non-union office guys together. They're like, all right, guys, let's, fix this we got to dump this somewhere and they look around and there's like a pristine river there they're like well <laughs> 50 years ago some trouble yeah. for that. 50 years ago we could have dropped it in there in, in love canal or whatever that thing is called but you know we got it so they apparently they built some special bunkers to keep the concrete in so i'm just imagining these like pencil neck twerps with pocket protectors trying to like slam some uh some beams together to try to create some sort of tarp yeah. situation probably i wish there was cctv man that would have been uh -huh. good to watch uh i guess like brown jackson's ruling in this is it's not so much that she defends the actions of the teamsters yeah. although she certainly seems more sympathetic than the other eight justices but she's more convincing in her um in her like her protestations yeah. that there is a fundamental right to strike. Well, what, what she's saying is not that Teamsters did nothing wrong, but that the decision to make the uh, NLRB decide if this was an appropriate action or not should be protected. Right. Whereas the other eight justices had some variety of, no, that was beyond the pale. Yeah. And I think an interesting thing that comes up in this decision is the question of picket lines. Because mm. I think it's mentioned... Um, in one of the decisions that, uh, well, of course, you know, a violent picket would not be uh, acceptable um, as a strike tactic. That could be prosecuted as some sort of crime. Um, well, always and that, I think that demonstrates, like, the danger of the NLRB is that, okay, yeah, you can have some of your strike actions legally defended by the federal government, and so you're not just being sued or brought up on charges by whatever state or city government, uh, but at the same time, you can no longer actually pick it. Right. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to the, uh, the 1980s with the shift towards, like, permanent replacement workers. Uh, and I think that hard pickets were really, like, in the 1960s or so, they started to go down. Like, a hard picket, of course, is, like, physically keeping scabs out of the plant. Um, Oh, yeah. So in the eight to one argument, like the, the concurring argument that uh, the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over it, uh, it says uh, to justify, quote, despoiling an employer's property or the seizure and conversions of its goods, we have reasoned uh, would put a premium on resort to force instead of legal remedies. And there you have it right there. What that means, the legal remedies, is that obviously this is what labor law has been designed to do since the 1930s is to replace um, spontaneous uh, or certainly like concerted or dare you say like violent industrial action uh, force 
uh, with legal remedies, which is pushing them up into this aspect, this siloed off aspect of the administrative state, this judicial review board called the NLRB, which adjudicates, uh, you know, contractually between these two different parties. Um, and of course, that's a process that can take anywhere from months to years to happen. This includes grievances, of course, too. So like replacing shop floor action, replacing initiative by the rank and file or initiative by uh, a local union, you know, with instead legal remedy, which is to say, get the lawyers involved. Let's do a lawsuit. Maybe we'll get kicked up to the NLRB. Worst case, we'll get kicked up to the Supreme Court and then we'll have a decision in six to 18 months or whatever. And that is how American labor law is designed. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to take it out of uh, the realm where people like you and me, um, rank and file members or even business agents or whatever, uh, have some say in what sort of tactics and strategies are used to, to the legal remedy. Uh, so I think it's like, they all know that, right? But people out there should know that. People should know that like the labor law system that we have in this country um, makes it really, really impossible to do the sort of actions, even like despoiling nine trucks full of concrete in like a willful or accidental sabotage takes that out of workers' hands and puts it up into the courts. And it'll always be that way as long as we abide by the rules of the NLRB. Uh, but it, it does seem like the NLRB is going to either be largely defanged or just steered into like purely an instrument of class domination, even more than it already is. Yeah. And where these sorts of cases can be easily won, uh, you know, the Supreme Court, as long as it keeps this far right majority, can um, side with the NLRB when there's a right wing administration and dismiss it when there's... Yeah, no, that's a good point, yeah, because this is a question of jurisdiction, right? So you're right, like, uh, probably the only reason this reached the Supreme Court of the United States is because Biden managed to put people on who were, like, vaguely more supportive of uh, unions and their scope than, say, Trump would have appointed, certainly some like, more than, like, Bush would have appointed, or even Obama. So, yeah, just wait if Trump or DeSantis or whoever gets into office in a couple of years, they'll kick you right back to that uh, NLRB. That nice, soft, but maybe it's, it's worth NLRB. reminding listeners and me. I know you've talked about this before, but like, how did the NLRB come about? Like, what, what, what were the conditions that led to the Wagner Act? And uh, you know, what does the NLRB represent? Well, it's That's something the, to be defended. You know, uh, to be defended. <laughs> I've been arguing against defending because it for if we a want, while. you know, this, yeah. that's the question of this case, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I mean, that's, that is the limited scope of this case, um, which is why it's hard to get too exercised for exactly the reason you said, which is it's a competing jurisdictions thing. Um, it's hard to defend the NLRB. It's one of those things. It's like defending, um, you know, the democratic party or whatever. It's kind of like there's, um, you're either without a union or you're with one. You're either inside that system or you're outside of it. And, um, you know, if any sort of, practical stuff is going to get done barring there being a workers movement strong enough and militant enough to actually push industrial action on a mass scale it's sort of what you got the nlrb comes out of the nlra in the 19 1933 34 and uh basically it's a response to by that point 60 70 80 years of like mass violent struggle uh between labor and capital in this country uh, it's based off of, uh, in the 19-teens, the progressive attempt to first regulate railroads and labor relations on them. Uh, and in America, uh, as opposed to other countries, it's um, played out on the terrain of, of rights, you know, and uh, civil rights, which is to say that um, with the NLRA, you've said that worker self-organization uh, is a right by freedom of speech and freedom of assembly that shall not be abrogated. Uh, and a special board is going to be put together that exists as a juridical body to adjudicate disputes between labor and capital. The, it was an attempt to, for the first time, uh, basically tamp down on the massive class struggles that existed in a way that wasn't just National Guards being sent in by governors and injunctions by judges leading to um, either private militias or state National Guards or federal troops just like going in and physically having to like drag workers back to their machines or shoot their encampments, you know, whatever the case may be, which is what you saw previous to that. So it was like a, a late, because this had all been going on for, God, like decades at this point in time. It's a late attempt to try to like solve the labor question 
uh, through the court system in this country. Is it to be defended? I don't know, man. I don't know if it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's like... Um, I've argued on this show that it shouldn't be. It's definitely one of the death knells of the workers movement internationally, and there's different versions of this in different countries. I mean, you know, fascism was one version of this, mm. right? Like the incorporation of unions into state power in mm-hmm. some, to some extent. And then you get like left-wing versions of that. Left Peronism, I guess, is an example of that. Like the early Peron period where the, the state bureaucracy would weigh in on the side of the workers every time. Mm. But the only unions that could be recognized were ones that were aligned with the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was a way of rationalizing, the, rationalizing. The, the, the class contradiction within the boundaries of the state, of the bureaucracy, of the political apparatus. So it no longer was this just like brutal class confrontation between uh, different armed factions. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, as happened in Argentina, you know, as happened in Europe, as happened in the United States, you then have the classic split between like uh, conservative and liberal within bourgeois politics. And you have necessarily, and this happened in the United States, necessarily one fraction of capital representing one sort of political wing uh, of the bourgeoisie, uh, becoming the sort of patrons, becoming that section of the class which seeks to integrate the unions and the working class in general into that state body. So then you have battles that take place, again, off the shop floor, um, off the streets, uh, battles that, again, uh, happen in the political sphere, in the elect- electoral sphere. Then, mm-hmm. So if you're a supporter of labor unions, as all the you know, labor bureaucracies are in this country, then you have your political party. You have the political party that seeks to uh, maintain, to conserve the integrative function of American labor law, even in a period when mass unionism has died, but at the same time, these key industries like manufacturing and logistics uh, are so essential to capital and to um, you know, the political body and the state that you have to have that integrative function still in order to keep class conflict um, low. And also, of course, have unions that become part of your campaign and funding apparatus as well. And do you think the developments within the, the Teamsters and, and UPS, the UPS strike looming, do you think that is an indication that there's some will to break out of the cul-de-sac of, of this sort of bureaucratized business unionism? I think rhetorically there is. Right. I think that like the, the two Sean's that we talked about on the Alex Press uh, episode, Sean Fain of the... Um, Sean Fain of the the UAW and Sean O'Brien of the uh, Teamsters. Certainly it feels like these two leaders have risen up in a moment when not just the rank and file, but large parts of the, of union leadership realize that if something doesn't change, the whole ship's going down. So when you hear, um, you know, the rhetoric from the Teamsters around the strike saying like, you know, the Teamsters didn't get a union by asking nicely. We had blood on our hands. We were fighting it out on the streets, and we're prepared to fight it again that way. Uh, that is, I, that comes from a real place. I don't think it's just cynical. I think the question is, the Teamsters, what, 365,000 members um, uh, represented under the uh, UPS contract? How far are they willing to go? Because you see how quickly um, the Supreme Court or the NLRB uh, or courts in general and injunctions can shut down unions, fine unions, and can even decertify unions. So all of that rhetoric means something, I think, and it means something real. But it shows the pretty past that, uh, that these institutions are in, and a sort of like union movement, quote-unquote, which is in its endgame right now. And bringing along even like the very conservative union leadership forces that exist in this country towards at least the sense that there needs to be some like big, maybe final struggle before the whole thing goes down. But it just doesn't seem like that's on the horizon. I mean, like we're seeing workers flex their power in certain ways. And um, I think even like if we see a UPS strike in that direction, it'll be because the previous union leadership at UPS gave them a bad deal, like mm. rejected the deal that they voted for in exchange for something worse. So I, it seems to me like the radicalism might be, around uh you know having been previously sold out mm-hmm. um and you know maybe they won't be fooled again we'll see but it's not a it doesn't but like i think a better example uh is really the the port shutdowns oh yeah um we had a bunch of the, articles we read about that yeah on the west coast you, yeah yeah so they've been shutting down like i think last week 
ports were shut down for two days. Uh, there were, there was like slowdowns before that, you know, everybody taking their lunch break at the same time and then just getting progressively worse because they've been without a contract uh, for a little while. A new one's being negotiated. It's not looking good. And the, the question it's a question of, seems like it's a question of automation, of like uh, uh, what rule, what uh, role the union workers will play in uh, the automation process that's being developed for well, these. Well, the, the bosses and the consultants in the uh, longshore, like the port world, have one word that they, that they like to throw in the workers in the union's face when they pull shit like this, and that's Rotterdam. You know about Rotterdam? Tell us about Rotterdam. Oh, it's like the most advanced port in the entire world. And basically over the course of the last decades, uh, this like relatively small port has grown into this absolute beast where it's like gps and like qr codes and those rft whatever things that like 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 little gps devices Uh or whatever like these entire ports run with like a skeleton crew basically it's Mm -hmm. like this big automated factory of moving things around and that's not how it is on the west coast or the east coast no uh west and east coast of the united states is like relatively unautomated relatively backwards and primitive Mm. i mean partially because of those workers power right uh but also because for various reasons, American infrastructure just fucking sucks completely. And like uh, poor capitalists were like, well, we'd rather like just piece away like every year or so um, or every contract or so and try to take a little bit more from the workers than just really give them hell and like, you know, overthrow the whole regime and put billions of dollars into the port system. So the automation threat is a real one. Like the way they, the port workers dealt with this in the 60s and 70s and 80s, looking at containerization was they did a beautiful thing called feather betting, which is you just like, you understand that every contract, you're going to lose a certain amount of jobs through attrition. Those jobs are going to go away. You keep everybody working until they retire. But once they're out, they get like nice pension packages. You in the United States, the ILA and I think the ILWU both voted for like uh, a percentage of the tonnage that comes off. So you get like bonus pay based on how much gets moved. So like even as m- each individual worker moves more and more stuff, you know, so productivity increases. You're also seeing more of that in your paycheck going by. So, like, that particular struggle right there is a long-standing one. And um, the question is, like, how many jobs are going to be lost with this new contract? Like, te- technological innovation is coming down the pipe in that. It already exists in Rotterdam. The question here is, like, will, how much will workers see as their jobs are slowly attritioned out of existing? Over the, like, the course of decades. We're not talking mm-hmm. about like five years. But in the meantime, uh, obviously, the workers seem fairly organized and militant in, at these ports, uh, enough to, to shut it down. Uh, I, I think one of the articles mentioned that what this could mean is just more stuff gets shipped to the East Coast because mm-hmm. there's not... It does, it's, I don't know the, what's, why the East Coast and the West Coast don't have that kind of solidarity. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Uh, the ILWU and the ILA, they've, they, they've got fucking history. The, the uh, International Longshores Association, which is the union that now represents the East, East Coast ports, used to represent the West Coast ports. And they were, and less, to less of an extent, but certainly still are, um, like a yellow dog union, basically like working hand in glove with the companies. Um, famously on the West Coast back in the day, they were like uber corrupt. They might as well have been company unions. The ILWU comes out of like a communist-led uh, rank-and-file initiative to form like a new industrial, like militant industrial union. Harry Bridges. Harry Bridges, like out of the dregs of the, I, the ILA, which had been selling workers out for like decades. So the ILWU succeeds on the West Coast, but the ILA remains on the East Coast. And so, as you said, it's like pretty easy to play off one port against another, or one coast against another. And it's even possible, despite the ILWU having... Every port from like, I think Vancouver, but at least Seattle to Tacoma, uh, all the way down to the Bay Area and down to Long Beach, uh, easy for the the port operators to play even like different ports off one another. Mm. You know, like if workers walk out in uh, Long Beach, sometimes they'll just send the ship up to like Oakland or whatever. So the geography of this thing is a very interesting one. And the ILWU has still has that residue of like class struggle militancy from the Harry Bridges time. But even within Bridges' lifetime, um, and he dies in the 50s, I think, uh, they already started to become more of a business union. And they still have these sort of militant traditions like walkouts and wildcat strikes. They still exist. And a very uh, militant rank and file still. 
uh, but how is it possible to not be a business union if business unions exist you know if if the east coast is a business union how do you not be one on the west coast i mean you you really i mean there are no non-business unions in this country anymore for like obvious reasons right like even the ilwu even like the the ue which is a remaining like militant industrial formerly communist uh led union you know, has to worry about whether the jobs are still there, has to worry about profits, um, has to worry about making a bargain at the end of the day. And it's not simply or just American labor law that forces their hand in that because you see the same or similar things happening over in Europe where you have like large communist-led unions. At the end of the day, this dance between labor and capital, between the bosses and the workers, only exists as long as there's jobs there. You know what I mean? And the poor jobs still exist in large number, uh, A, because of globalization of production and distribution of commodities, uh, but also because for necessary reasons, those jobs can't be moved, right? You can't do longshoring from elsewhere. Unless maybe Rotterdam, that experiment means that someday you'll be able to have like, I'm just making this up, but like drones flying ahead to see where things are happening there and like CCTV and some guy, you can pay some guy in Bangladesh like $10 a day to have a little joystick and like computer and he moves all the things around the port. Like that would be ideal for capital, right? It's just to like outsource that, that very spatial production of transportation to somewhere else. And they'll eventually, maybe they'll get there if the planet doesn't burn first. Well, I mean, people still have to have wages so they can buy the stuff that's coming in on the shipping containers. No, that doesn't matter. (laughs) There's, there's plenty of um, professional and managerial jobs out there to keep, consumption up and there's a huge you know this is the country of billionaires man mm-hmm. you know what the biggest in europe the biggest growth in- industry over the last few years or so and actually like the biggest uh company in france and the richest guy in the world uh bernard arnault right. is now luxury products it's yeah, like burberry before, yeah. and fucking so that i mean like capitalist consumption can replace that to a certain extent to a certain extent but I was reading about with this Target stuff, like Target has a slowdown since these kind of right-wing lunatics have started targeting it. Mm. It's kind of funny to remember that in 2020, Target was like the target of the George Floyd uprising. Yeah, and there were a bunch of right-wingers like defending the good big box retailer stores against the uh, insurrectionist Biden Uh communist insurgency. Yeah, Uh, But now we love Target. Right. And um, yeah, so uh, part of the story is I mean, probably the boycotts have something to do with it. Maybe not. I don't know. But uh, it seems like the bigger story is that uh, it, it was a report that came out of Costco's, you know, earnings call or something mm. that they think they see a shift in consumer preferences towards inferior goods, meaning like, you know, more generic goods uh, or also like more canned goods, like canned fish instead of fresh fish, mm. that sort of thing, because of, I don't know, economic anxiety mm. or I'm not really sure the reason for it, but the shift in general consumer preferences, I think, does can create a crisis mm. of if like the economy is is based on selling a certain massive volume of fresh goods, for example, and people aren't buying it anymore. It doesn't really matter how much champagne you sell to yeah. you can't cover the gap. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, you know, there's there's always like a an equilibrium or like a temporary equilibrium that's reached. You know, whether it's in the job market or whether it's in like various different industrial sectors or consumer sectors, certainly like capital as such or like the Biden administration or the port owners or even the big uh, industrial and agricultural outfits that are utilizing those ports. Their number one concern isn't like, will there be enough wages for these port workers to like buy our goods? Right. There's like tens of thousands of them at the most there's thousands of them so like this particular struggle is playing out on the terrain of like a relatively activated and relatively still militant rank and file which has the residue of struggle from the past and is able to do things like wildcat strikes do things like slowdowns do these sorts of kind of like granular industrial actions because they have kept that tradition alive and because they have so much power they exist at such a pressure point like a hinge point in the capitalist economy, um, they're able to leverage that into like powers that other workers don't have. And I mean, they're even despite them being a business union, despite how far they've fallen, they're still an inspiration, I think. They should be to all of us anyways. They have like that nucleus still of like what could turn the Teamsters strike from what it's going to be if it pops off next month, which is like a um, 
pro forma sort of like um, pressure valve letting out all the tension from the last bad contracts, like a week-long strike that puts billions of dollars of damage into the economy, but in like a $50 trillion economy or whatever, and it'll blow over and the workers will get a little bit more. The sort of energy that the ILWU workers have is the sort of thing that could take that out of the realm of the pro forma and push it towards something else. But that's the thing that you and I have been looking for on this show for years. And uh-huh. we've seen little spots of it here or there, but it hasn't yeah, become and also it, I, We should say that the ILWU has taken political stances in, the, in recent history. Like I think uh, they participated in the Oakland general strike after mm. Occupy. Um, I think there was some participation in like the anti-port militarization stuff during the Iraq war. And yeah, they, they boycotted South Africa in the 1980s. And there was... Apartheid. Uh, I guess there was some Israeli ship that they would unload, but I don't know the full story with that. So it's not like it's impossible. These people are not only thinking about themselves purely and their, you know, individual professional interests. Um, and yeah, there's, there's chances for this stuff to get political. Um, uh, although like everything I'm reading besides world socialist website does <laughs> not seem to indicate that. I love how world socialist website seems to have at least like one or two militants in whatever, industrial sector it is that's popping off at any time it's impressive that they can go to for like cool poll quotes like Uh i read one of the articles you linked and at the end it's like we talked to a port worker and he's like the working class of the world has nothing to lose but it's chains the (laughs) only way we're ever going to get a good contract is by overthrowing the bourgeoisie and throwing the rotten imperialist system in the trash and you're like wow that guy's fucking based where did they find him and i'm (laughs) guessing they have like a militant there that they just give the microphone to go go do it do it you know and that's cool. It's great. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's classic uh, Trotskyist, Leninist journalism. You where's know? Antifa's divisions, man? Antifada's divisions out there. If you're one of our divisions, we want to interview you. Well, I, I want to go down job, to a so local. We you got a have, job. We both have jobs now. Okay, shit. I guess I could be the one in the in the building trades. I thought that was the plan. Could, could be like Andy here. We're on the scene of a of a of a struggle in the building trades. Let's go to random worker Sean. <laughs> Sean, what do you think about the way that his name is uh, John? John K D. <laughs> <laughs> so Target kind of brought up, I think, something that you and I uh, have been a bit remiss on, and we've been called out. And I actually appreciate the people on Twitter and elsewhere that reached out to me and was like. Where the fuck are you guys and your show in the midst of this like insane, uh, terrible crackdown on trans people in this country? Like a real panic that's been sweeping through um, the corridors of power, through targets around the country, through churches, through drag shows, like all over the place. Well, the, yeah, I mean, besides the direct violence um, and the disgusting, you know, rhetoric online, this legislation is starting to really affect people uh, uh like a hundred thousand trans people living in florida are just yeah. not getting their the medical treatment that they need yeah um and which is itself a violent process like taking somebody off for example hormones you know that is not something that is not violent to somebody's body you know uh, they're they're medically given medicine that they and so i think away. our listeners thought that um with some of the things we've said about fascism on the show like some, our sort of uh, maybe reticence to call Trump a fascist mm. or the Republican Party a fascist or something that we aren't uh, taking seriously that this rhetoric and this action is fascist. It is scapegoating que- queer people and trans people in a way that is pretty reminiscent of like what happened to queer and trans people in Nazi Germany. It's incredibly, and, uh, it's incredibly cynical, but having uh, politically the way these people are using trans people and their lives uh, as a political bludgeon to to win power to win elections and also to like sacrifice these people on the for their own petty political interests and power interests i mean that's that's very cynical but it go it's deeper than cynicism too so i think that like this hatred and fear uh, of trans people of queer people is like becoming now in a way that we probably haven't seen in this country since the 90s with like the anti-gay backlash which i also lived through it's becoming a, a, a thing that um is getting really fucking ugly really fucking fast and having like serious effects, as you said, on hundreds of thousands of millions of people. It's not something we can or should remain silent on. Yeah, so I, by saying that the Republicans aren't a fascist party or Trump's not a fascist, doesn't mean that this rhetoric and these, this legislation isn't fascist. It absolutely is, and I'll, I'll try to get into why I think that. 
I think the, the point that we made in the past is a lot of this culture war stuff is purely cynical, but people like Matt Walsh and these like more Christian nationalist people and the Nazis who come out to these anti-drag mm-hmm. queen things are obviously Nazis and mm-hmm. fascists. And the fact that they are driving the Republican Party policy, no matter what the Repu- you know, I, I believe that the Republican Party does not want a social revolution, uh, a fascist social revolution the way the fascists do. They want the stability of the bourgeois order, mm. putting, making queer people go back into their closets is one way to stabilize that order. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is a fascist political imaginary, which is that if we can just make men men and women women mm-hmm. again and reorganize society around the good patriarchal heterosexual nuclear family, then we can have a rebirth of the United States. We can make right. America great again through this you know, classic division of labor that we imagined from the 50s or 40s or something like that. And queerness since the 60s, since the split between the Manichean Society and Stonewall, has been very explicit that we're here, we're queer, get used to it. Mm-hmm. We're not going back in the closet. And not only that, I think what's most impressive about queer liberation is that it won't even go back in the closet of cisgender, of the legalization of gay marriage, was this opportunity to like cut the queerness off of the movement yeah. and just accept gay, bi, and lesbian uh, people as like, you know, you can have families too. You can have kids too. You can have a suburban family home and a good job too. Um, but since then, queerness has only exploded mm-hmm. in uh, not only in the amount of people who are coming out as queer and embracing the term, but the, the vast sympathy uh, towards the concept of queerness and the, the deepening consciousness of what queerness means, not only as, as a lifestyle, but also in terms of a critique mm. of the structure of American life. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, and the, you know, there's a, there's a more fundamental, and I don't want to get too abstract, like, I don't want to turn this into a thing where we, like, pick this apart or abstract it to the point where, like, we're just in la-la land, which, you know, I think I tend to do sometimes, but, like, what's at stake here is a very human freedom, you know, this comes back to the, the episode that we did uh, with Soren Mao, especially that little bit in his book where he talks about humans and tool uh, organs and um, uh, corporeal organization, whatever. How I connect these two things is, you know, in a very sort of Hegelian sense, um, what human, human beings through history have always kind of pushed at the boundaries of the, pushed at the boundaries of their own bodies and pushed at the boundaries of community uh, and what it represents and pushed at the boundaries of gender and pushed at the boundaries of what it is to be human. Part of, I think, the reason why you're seeing this explosion of queerness, as you said, um, is that we now have tools. Uh, We are now understanding enough about the human body and how it works. Uh, We're understanding enough about the history of the various different ways that human beings have expressed themselves, you know, through anthropology and through deep history. Uh, We have we're starting to have the means to do things to ourselves that were impossible up until very, very recently, whether it's through hormones or whether it's through surgery. Human freedom is about the unfolding of different ways to push at the boundaries of what it is to be human. And we do that. The vulgar fucking, like the return, this pisses me off, the return of the fucking Stalinist shit. I thought Baba Vakin was like the last one to be like, queerness is degenerate or whatever to take this like Stalinist or like Maoist line, you know, that it's like bourgeois degeneracy. But now we're seeing that come back on some aspects of the left um, or at least people who claim that they're left, like the MAGA communists or various MLs or whatever. It's a very like, I think it's worse than that. I think it's that I think, I think the reason people got pissed off at us is they think that we are uh, hewing too close to this class reductionist bullshit that thinks that issues of, queerness and race are distractions. And I, I, I understand why people think that, but, yeah. uh, and I'm, I'm sorry that if we've, I think we've probably done that at times, but, um, yeah, we, we do not dismiss queer liberation, black liberation, feminism or anything like that. We understand these as revolutionary processes. It's revolutionary. It's, um, it's a pro like whenever human beings gather a new tool about themselves, whenever human beings uh, create new forms of social organization, whenever human beings are freed from old fetters, and in this case, it's the fetter of like small town conservative community and also the fetter of the bourgeois family, um, 
they're able to like to reinvent themselves or recreate themselves and the binary between like the individual and the collective is a very bourgeois one i think and one that like too many people on the left fall into what trans freedom is is like the most fundamental of all human freedoms which is the freedom to like explore the freedom freedom to build the freedom to express the freedom to use our advancing technological and social knowledge that we have in order to craft like new and freeing ways to be as human beings. And there's always the backlash. There was the backlash to reconstruction. There was the backlash to the 1960s. Um, there was uh, the backlash in the 1980s. You know, remember this, all this like um, cancel culture bullshit goes back to the 1990s with like political correctness or whatever. Whenever the boundaries of human freedom get pushed forward, you're always going to have a backlash to it. But like what are communists and what is the communist project except expanding the bounds of human freedom and association? So there's a fundamental um, disconnect from the people who want to sideline this as, as only a cultural issue when it's, it's much deeper than that. Yeah, it's about I mean, free association. It's about free expression. And it's about the sort of things that you would need that are absolutely necessary in order to like build a movement that's predicated on an even more or like a greater and more generalized fundamental freedom, which is the freedom to be free association of producers. Well, I agree with all that. Um, but then on top of that, this has been an issue in Marxism since the communist manifesto, the communist manifesto makes a critique of the bourgeois family. And that critique is, is saying that these, uh, these relationships of the, the family um, and obviously gender uh, is a part of the division of labor within the family mm -hmm. um, and the, the conceptions of gender and sex and the conceptions of what a family is and how it operates uh, are part of the political economy. They are not trans-historical. There has not always been a static conception of sex, gender, and the family. Um, and that's why Marxists seek to abolish the family the same way we want to abolish the economy, abolish the state, uh, not uh, get rid of all families forever, and now everyone is everyone's brother and sister, but um, sublate it, sublate uh, it overcome yeah. it, get rid of the aspects of it that are purely designed to make the man the breadwinner, the woman the domestic servant. These are the family is an organ of social reproduction, and we want to revelize social reproduction. And queerness, along with feminism, is just an obvious part of that revolutionary process. Yeah. Now, of course, capitalism adapts. Um, capitalism creates desires to help it adapt. It creates the tools necessary to express new desires. And so part of that adapt adaptation is, is most visible today in the way that queerness had to be accepted within uh, both the corporate culture in terms of like how HR policies are written to accept queer people into the company because they want that talent. Um, but also their image, mm -hmm. because queerness is so vastly popular uh, in the United States today that all of these companies seem like dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So they have to put on a rainbow flag yeah. to, to like to give a little nod to people, even though people know it's cynical. They're like, "Oh, don't worry about us. Like we're actually we're actually on your side." Lockheed Martin stands with pride. You and know? so the it's that is such fodder to these reactionaries because they can say, "Oh, look, Lockheed Martin." is uh, like the, the, the CIA is doing this. Yeah, like yeah. this is all like, this is all grooming. This is all part of the plan to, g to degenerate the family, to, you know, make us even more atomized and alone. Um, and yeah, I think, unfortunately I do think a lot of leftists and not just like of the weird MAGA communists, uh, Leninist variety do fall for that mm -hmm. because they, do, they have been come, become so reactionary towards liberalism that they fail to understand that uh, what happened in the 60s and the, the queer liberation movement that came out of it is part of this ongoing revolutionary process and continues to be. And there, it's not even like under the Revolutionary Communist Party of Baba Vakian where like, all the cadre were in like, direct contact with one another and they were under the revolutionary leadership you know, of Chairman Bob or whatever. The people that you see online spouting this shit are just as alienated, just as atomized, just as separated from everybody else, and spouting, out, uh, spout, spouting off, off online, um, you know, individually from their computers, from their basements or whatever, uh, because, like, there is no 
organized left. There's no place, there's no like socialist or communist party or movement or workers movement for an independent and mass like trans revolutionary politics to like be uh, uh, incubated in, right? There's like a lot of different books. There's a lot of different great thinkers. There's a lot of individuals doing great work, trying to like work within the anarchists or the communist scene or whatever. But like the failure for there to be like a revolutionary communist uh, mass uh, politics that is like inclusive of and recognizing of trans people is a failure of the left. It's not a failure of trans people. It's not a failure of pride. Mm -hmm. And like people will point at the CIA having like, you know, the rainbow flag or Lockheed Martin at pride. And they'll say like you, you were just saying like, this is all a conspiracy, but like the left wing of capital or whatever. But like we live in a thoroughly bourgeois society. We live in a, in like, the most capitalist capitalist society of all time our politics is completely captured by like two wings of the bourgeoisie of the ruling class like so of course like mainstream politics of representation politics of rights politics of like um politics of law giving and law passing are going to take on this tenor and they're going to be filtered through the mass institutions of bourgeois society, which whether we like it or not, are the CIA, our Lockheed Martin, you know, our people's various Instagram posts or whatever. So like, um, taking queerness and like bracketing it off as like a decadent bourgeois thing. That's like a trick by the bourgeoisie is not just like very flawed and cynical, and stupid thinking it's also actually destructive of uh the recognition of the true task that we have which is to pull together all working class peoples you know whether they're cis or whether they're queer whether they're whatever and pull them together in a mass movement to confront and destroy capitalism part of the confusion in that is like this idea that queer people have taken on some kind of ideology people just get into these arguments in their head and they convince themselves whatever yeah. queerness is what they want to be when to me, the reality is like gender roles are in crisis as a result of the uh, you know, last 50 years of economic stagnation and decline. So it no longer really makes sense to try to be a man or try to be a woman in the way that it once did. It never fully made sense. Like men and women have obviously always struggled to adequately perform that role because the idea is that if you could do it well, you would have security within the pecking order of capital society like i'm the breadwinner and so the nostalgia for those roles the nostalgia for that life mm. of the nuclear family the trad life or whatever leads to this revanchist defense of gender yeah like it's and, and the gender binary and the traditional family which is a historically determinate thing really i mean it starts out among the the urban dwelling bourgeoisie in the 19th century the people who could have this division between work outside and reproduction in the household where the household wasn't like a fully economic unit like on like in working class house long story short is like it it, it became generalized by the 20th century, but it was already in the process of breaking down in the 1950s and 60s at the time it starts to become naturalized, right? And so, like, again, the, um, the gender binary um, is, like, incapable and has been for a long time. We see this across human civilization, across societies all around. The binary ha has always been incapable of containing all the various different ways people seek to express their identity, express their gender or whatever. People have always been pushing at that, right? And you see all these historical or suffering where, because they or suffering because, because they, they believe in it. Or yeah, or they believe in it or they don't believe in it but they can't do anything about it because they're like embedded in these deep traditional communities that don't have an outlet for this. Again, like this is one of the the curses and also the blessings of capitalism is that it not just creates the technological preconditions for breaking through barriers like the gender binary that has always bedeviled us and in different ways through history. Um, it, it like allows the technical and also the social means to realize something that's always been, people have been reaching towards realizing, right? So capitalism is this blessing in that it brings us the material basis for overcoming, but then it also of course throws us into the pit of isolation, of alienation, of exploitation and oppression, where it becomes clear that, and we're not telling people anything they don't know, that you can't do these things on your own. And so all new force, sorts of communities are formed. 
you know, all different sorts of groups are formed to try to have some collective expression of these individual feelings that people have. And that's, again, something that needs to be celebrated as like a rise of a new sort of longing and searching for an individual freedom within the collective of society. That society over the last 10 or 20 years or so has finally been able to realize for itself. I mean, ultimately, it's pushing back against a kind of disciplining. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this. I mean, it's, it, it feels a little awkward for us to, I think maybe more the reason we haven't really talked about it is because like, what are two cis guys going to tell our yeah. listeners? Our list, as far as I can tell, our listeners are largely queer. I don't know the percentage, yeah. but I feel like, what am I going to tell you? Like, and let's be fucking honest. You and me both live in a bubble. We live not just in New York City, but like a very particular part of New York City. Mm-hmm. Like when you're, when you're talking about like my personal history with like queer people and queer communities, like where would I even fucking start? I'd start going back to when I was born and the fact that I'm named Sean because my mother's best friend in college was a gay man named Sean who died of AIDS, one of the early people that died of AIDS. And so she loved him so much that she named me after him. So like, I know that. you know, I'm, and, and of course too, like living in this city, uh, there, there's just, for me, there's never been any time for like second guessing the choices that people made or judging people based on their choices or what they look like or whatever. It's a New York City thing. But then again, if you live in fucking Tallahassee right now, things look way different. Maybe if you and I lived in DeSantis's Florida, we would have had a fire under our asses to do something about mm-hmm. this earlier. Because it's very easy sitting here in New York City where things are relatively freer to be like, oh, well, look what's happening down there. Looks shitty. Right. Well, that's the other part of it is like, what does it mean to take it seriously? Like, is us talking about it on the podcast taking it seriously? Not exactly. No, I mean it. We're trying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I want to say one more thing, and then maybe we can go to the bonus, um, is that like, although I don't, I don't think either of us have any calls to action or anything like that, besides obviously just like support and love the queer and trans people in your life, regardless of what their politics are, they are the targets right now. And, and also, like, I, I, I wanted to make sure to say this, like, we are an ex- abstentionist podcast. You know, what a lot of what the Antifada is about is what other good people are trying to do on the left, not just us, but trying to, like, carve out some sort of independence from, like, the Democrat left, you know, and the Democratic Party in general, which is able to suck up all these sort of liberatory energies and turn them into like cynical political power plays, the other side of what these Republican ghouls are doing. But we've never made like a virtue out of not voting. And we've never said to any of our guests or certainly not to any of our listeners, like if you vote Democrat, you know, you're not a friend or a comrade of ours anymore. People like need to make tactical choices. If there is like your state Senate is like on the edge there between like whether your rights are going to be taken away or not. Like, please, by all means, do whatever you can to defend yourselves. You know, this is not a fucking morality play here. This isn't about taking the most revolutionary position. We can still work towards crafting like a militant working class communist politics, right? While acknowledging that sometimes the Hippocratic oath in politics is the way to go. And if I was given that decision, of course I would vote to try to defend people that I know who are queer or trans or whatever it is, if and when that's on the line. And then aside from that, um, I think the, the, what does give me hope is just looking at the total history of queer liberation since Stonewall. I mean, Stonewall was no small thing. Like, this was a days-long riot that was extremely violent against the police shutting down a queer bar. And it was participated in not only by queer and trans and gay and lesbian people, but also just by like people walking by, like radicals, workers, homeless people, all sorts of people saw what Stonewall was, understood it and loved it and joined in. And it was such an apocalyptic event that it, like I, like I said earlier, opened up this new possibility uh, of struggling that was called the queer liberation movement, whereas previously gay rights was only about respectability and it wasn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Since then, there have been decades of really, really intense struggle. It's not like there was Stonewall and then there was pride flags at the bank. No, there was intense struggle, uh, which passed through the AIDS era, mm-hmm. where a lot of those people, a huge percentage of those people who, were, who uh, for the first time in the 70s, we're free to love and have sex the way they wanted to because they found each other after that struggle 
died mm -hmm. and they all died together and watched each other die yeah. and that was a very political moment while a closeted uh, democratic mayor named ed koch in new york city stood by and watched all those people die and didn't do a, a and thing that's part of the backlash that you mentioned too is, yeah. is like well i see what's going on here but these gays have gone far enough and yeah. this is kind of what they have going this is like karma for them that was the dominant attitude that's what I heard as a kid no, um, I mean, at the tail end of that. To just, again, like we started this episode by me being like old and bewildered by like new developments in like activism or politics or whatever. And maybe we can end it that way too because being uh, somebody who was a teenager in the shit, the, the mid-90s, you know, remembering things like uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, remembering the heroic struggles of groups before that like act up and whatever and seeing the way in which all these victories were won um i was perhaps pretty naive i must say thinking that like the door was closed on that particular type of bigotry and that there was nobody cynical enough to open that door up again and that people had accepted gay and queer people to the extent that like you couldn't have a backlash of this scale and i was wrong and I have to, I have to own that, and I have to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking. I think, Just I, I over think the last a lot of year people so. haven't accepted it. Uh, certainly, did not see it coming, and haven't accepted it. And I, year. and and like, I'll take the um, the L on that. Just as all of us, as a, as people, are taking the L on uh, what these horrific ghouls are fucking doing. But like, yeah, that door is opened up again, and we got to fight like hell to uh, to close it. Right. So that that was. The point I was trying to get to is that this, this is an ongoing struggle that uh, in many ways began with Stonewall, went through the AIDS era with ACT UP and other organizations, and went through the legalization of gay marriage that was like roundly rejected uh, by queer radicals successfully. Like the institution of marriage is not seen as being the big prize. Mm. And so this struggle is ongoing. It is incredibly scary, especially if you're not a cis person. And, but it's, it's also not a new struggle. Yeah, I'm glad we, uh, we talked about it and acknowledge yeah. it. And we're going to move to the bonus. And we're going to talk about um, someone who passed away this past weekend. Someone who was, you might not know, pretty influential to anarchists in the 90s and 2000s. And so we'll talk a little bit about the legacy of Uncle Ted and maybe read a little bit of what he wrote. So if you want to check out the bonus part of the episode you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the antifada for five dollars a month or for a big discount if you sign up for the year we always appreciate that and when you do just dm me uh, with your mailing address and i'll send you a postcard and thanks everyone for sticking with us and thanks for listening and we'll talk about industrial society and its consequences in the bonus just sparked one up so uh welcome to the other side of the paywall friends we're gonna get weird with it man it's like we're in eugene oregon in 2000 and we're andy's, ready to smash a tv andy's sitting across from me right now banging on that thing like he's joe rogan and i'm elon musk that's the vibe we're going for right now and why do you get to be the rogan bro i i did post this clip of rogan a while ago where he's like the unabomber is correct <laughs> him and duncan trussell of course you I'll try to put that into that. the show. You know, there was that meme going around this week, like, what's a stupid guy's conception of who a smart guy is? And it's not only Joe Rogan, but it's also Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> Ted I Kaczynski. I mean, I guess he was smart in terms of math, but that doesn't make Ted, you, like, politically very Ted smart. Ted Kaczynski was the James Lindsay, conceptual <laughs> James of the 1960s and 70s. And just like yeah, conceptual... There's, there's a lot of that in his writing. Just like conceptual James was a math guy whose brain was broken by his idealist idiocy, so too was Ted Kaczynski's brain broken by that and also the CIA, <laughs> right? The MK Ultra shit. I, don't, I haven't seen anything that indicates that. I mean, maybe... His whatever. brother was interviewed on it. What, what did he say? 
His brother's like, yeah, they fucked, they fucked my brother up bad, man. They gave him but LSD for years. Said, I don't know. Everything like Ted, uh, Ted Kaczynski said, he never says like, I was fucked up by these experiments. He's like, he's just defending this point of view that he has. That's, that's kind of worse though. Like his point of view, like his critique of uh, industrial civilization and uh, his like what became as a movement, deep green resistance or whatever yeah. are relatively out there theories like he breaks from leftism and primitivism but he stays within a sort of like not i said primitivism i mean anarchism but he stayed within like a like a systematic critique of like industrial society is i'm saying his views were like relatively coherent i guess the question is does he does the fact that he goes towards this like individual terroristic violence like killing the little Eichmanns who work at like the copy shop up the street or whatever. Would he have done that if that guy Henry Murray at Harvard has, hadn't seen him as like an experimental? Yeah, maybe not. I just feel like that, um, that way of framing it is just another like, oh, Ted Kaczynski was an op. He was programmed yeah. to do these things. When in reality, the stuff that he's saying is, uh, you know, it's not like he invented these ideas. Uh, Jacques Camat. Uh, mm -hmm. came to these ideas as a Marxist from the Bordega tradition. Mm -hmm. Freddie Perlman came to these ideas yes. as a left communist. Mm -hmm. Zerzan came to the ideas probably before Kaczynski in the 80s. He was a left communist as well. Mm. There's, there's a whole line of post-situationist people. Well, I mean, if you... Post-left anarchism and, like, post-situationist shit becomes post-left anarchism, right? And, like, I, I think Kaczynski, as much as he tried... Uncle Ted, I should say as much as he tried to deny it, was a man of the left. If you see in his manifesto the great critiques that he's giving, it's actually of, like, progressivism. Mm -hmm. And it's of, like, he even says, like, politically correct culture. It's, it's incredible. It's from 1995, and he's got these, like, critiques of the snowflake left. This just shows you how, how like, horrifying and shitty politics is in this country, but how we haven't even really moved on from, like, 30 fucking years ago, man.